0: Well, thanks again for your attention in that first hour, and God willing, the second hour will be of benefit. I know we are kind of going late into the night, and I'm going to mention Eutychus in Acts 20, who fell out of the window, and I hope we won't have to deal with that issue. So I will try to avoid that um, Pauline excess that we see in Acts chapter 20. But let's take our Bibles and turn to... Romans chapter sixteen, Romans sixteen. And follow along as I read a portion of that chapter beginning at verse one. Just think of all the names that are given, and think of all the encouragement that is administered in these words. Romans sixteen one. Commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was a servant of the church which is at Kencrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Eponidas, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also are in Christ Jesus. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved and the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved, greet Apellas, who is approved in the Lord. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asynchris, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for every inch of your word. And we trust that you have wasted no ink So we ask that we might see these jots and tittles to be from your mouth to our hearts. Bless us, Lord Jesus, we pray by your Spirit. Amen. Now, the Apostle Paul knew what it was to be dejected and outcast and in need of encouragement. Think of Acts chapter 9 when he was still the wolf-like Saul. He savingly met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus where he had planned on spending his time arresting and persecuting Christian saints but you know what happened in Damascus there Paul or Saul became Paul and so instead of spending his time in Damascus persecuting he spent his time witnessing and evangelizing and you know how it ended there in Damascus His ministry was not one with resounding statistics of conversion, but instead he was emptied out of the city by being let down in a basket because there was a plot to kill him. Now, when you think of starting out your ministry, that's not a very encouraging way to start. That's really discouraging. His first endeavors were met by a report of zero converts and a conspiracy to lynch him. You think of how he was then heading down to Jerusalem, probably pretty dazed, emotionally fragile, licking his wounds. So certainly the Christians in the church in Jerusalem, when he got back, would bring him soothing ointment, right? Well, that's not the way it worked out in Acts chapter 9. Just imagine how crestfallen the vulnerable, fledgling disciple Paul might have been when he faced in the Jerusalem mother church, not a warm reception, but instead he got a harsh rejection. It says in 9.26 of Acts. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join with the disciples there, but they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was actually a disciple. They they weren't at all friendly in Jerusalem like Ananias had been up in Damascus, but instead they were suspicious of Paul, Saul. They were shunning him. They were skeptical. And then this probably left Paul pretty disheartened and spiritually and emotionally gasping for breath. But then came the man known for always carrying around an EpiPen, not in his purse, but in his belt, and it was this fellow named Barnabas. Barnabas! It says about him in 927, Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, that's from 436, but it says here in the ninth chapter, but Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles. And Barnabas declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Barnabas, no doubt, encouraged Paul publicly bragging about his spiritual heroism in Damascus. This was well-timed. This was loving encouragement. And Lombardi-like, that encouragement turned the tide in Paul's life, resulting in Paul's being highly esteemed. And in all likelihood, it personally resuscitated the apostle Paul. And frankly, I don't think Paul ever forgot that lesson that barnabas the son of encouragement gave to him as we see that the impress of barnabas encouragement is all over paul's letters because paul seemed to always carry around an epipen that he would pull out in the middle of his letter writing and give adrenaline shots to the saints all throughout the empire See, eventually Paul himself became a man known for always carrying around an EpiPen just like Barnabas. Just notice a few snapshots of Paul's interpersonally handling friends and and co-workers and brothers and sisters in that that passage that I read to you. Now just think with me how it says there, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who was a servant of the church in Cancrea that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, listen to this now, who risked their own necks for my life, not to whom also I give thanks, but also do all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet Mary who labored for us, appell us Approved in Christ. Trifena and Trifona greet Rufus and greet one another with a holy kiss. You see, this correspondence pulses with multiple expressions of encouragement. Frankly, it reminds me of occasions where, oh boy, when I was at Riverside at your old building there, Robert, I can almost see myself sort of in the back. The lobby there were tables set up and you were introducing people to me and you may be telling me about uh deacon brown who had accomplished this for the church or uh secretary smith who was a heroine in your congregation or uh, a sunday school teacher just just reveling in the saints and as you would speak a word to them you would brighten their eyes This is the way the apostle dealt with these saints as he would pastor them, and we see it in something as simple as final greetings at the end of the letter to the Romans, which some might say is just uh, index material that's not relevant. No, I think it's very, very relevant. So what what I want to consider here is when you say, Pastor Mark, giving encouragement, what do you mean? I mean, how can we actually give encouragement? I do think we have an index of ways we can give encouragement to people here in this 16th chapter of Romans. I have a number of them listed here. First consider commendation. They're right there in your notes. The first is commendation. How can we encourage? Well, to commend is to hardly express approval for a job well done in the hearing of the one being praised in such a way that Others come to trust and esteem that individual. You can encourage people just by, just by commending them. That's what Paul did here in, in paving the way for a dear sister in Christ. Look, it says, 16.1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who was a servant of the church in Cenchrea. Indeed, she has been a helper of many, and to myself also commendation can change everything i can remember when i was 10 years old and i was going down to the aberdeen park where there was the tryouts from my local little league organization i was 10 years old and i was trying to make the the majors team i remember there at shortstop and fielding these ground balls and I felt awkward. I just wasn't getting things right. And I frankly didn't want to go that morning. I told my mom I didn't want to go because my older brothers, who always went with me wherever I went, they'd always be with me. But that year, they were in some other league and I was there all by myself. And I really felt emotionally fragile. But then, in the middle of these ground balls coming at me, there was my coach from the previous year off. Uh, by the fence talking to my coach of the new majors team was hitting the ground ball to me and says, hey, that chance can keep that shortstop. He's your man. He's got a great arm. He's got a great glove. He's got a great bat. He's your shortstop this year. And just hearing him say that with an earshot of that coach just changed everything for me. And I thought, well, if he thinks that of me maybe I, maybe I'm not so bad after all. And it, it changed everything because I, I played shortstop all that year for Haviland Products in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it was a word of commendation. Any of you ever listened to Albert Moeller in the Briefing? Anybody here? Yeah, about five times a week I listen to Moeller. He also has an additional show called Thinking in Public. And he will interview some important person and there's one interview from a few years ago it was kenneth woodward who was the former religion editor of newsweek magazine and and moeller moeller said this he says if you listen to that one he said in closing moeller said i want to tell you something a word of appreciation if i ever have the opportunity moeller said of writing a memoir, and I honestly do hope to do it at some point, I have a collection of books just to remind myself of models I'd like to incorporate in my own memoirs. And your book, Dr. Woodward, Getting Religion, well, that's one of those books. I think you tell your story so credibly well, I just wanted you to know that I greatly appreciate that. Now you listen to that thinking in public, and you realize that There is a change that is audibly electric in the voice of Ken Woodward when Al Mohler gave him that kind of a commendation. And likewise, there is this shot of adrenaline that we can give to others when we simply commend them, a word of commendation, like Paul commended Phoebe in Romans 16.1. So how else can I be encouraging Pastor Mark? Well, a second thing that we see in that passage is boasting. Boasting. You can boast about someone. Now, let's work with this. To boast or to brag with pride about your own achievement is unattractive. But to boast in the outstanding performance of others is splendid. It's glorious to do it. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another praise you, not your own mouth. Someone else, not your own lips. It tells us that we are to praise, not ourselves, but others. And Paul, we see, often did within earshot of the objects of his praising and his boasting. Did you just look in this Romans 16 account? He boasted of the heroism of Prisca and Aquila. Paul says, They risked their necks for me, 16.4. Now, maybe Paul was alluding to the brave valor they displayed in shielding him from the assassination-minded Jews who dragged him before Gallio and Corinth. That would be in Acts 18. Or maybe it was Priscilla and Aquila's sheltering him from the murderous stadium mob in Ephesians, in Ephesus, in, in Acts 19. Paul also boasted about the robust spirituality of the Corinthians. And you say the Corinthians, Paul. Why would he boast about the Corinthians? That congregation was a piece of work. But Paul found a way to even boast about the likes of them. It says in 2 Corinthians 7.4, great is my boldness of speech toward you, he's writing to the Corinthians. Great is my boasting in your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Or in 7.14 Paul says, for if anything I have boasted to Titus about you. I am not ashamed of it. But as we spoke all these things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found to be true. Yeah, Paul boasted about the Corinthians, or even in 8.24. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love, and that our boastings on your behalf are true. So Paul boasted about the corinthians he does the same thing of the thessalonians so how do you boast about someone well how about you know the idea of of words that are given can puff somebody up with pride okay that's possible but i think we should view that kind of boasting as spurring on somebody with inspiration how about how about a tweet like this my roommate terry is graduating summa cum laude while almost single-handedly carrying not-so-smart me through organic chemistry, hashtag best ever. We should use social media to both, but I read just today, I read this in a Facebook chat. The question was, how long should a sermon be? I was taking notes because I was preaching tonight. I may have violated it in the first hour. I apologize. But how long should a sermon be? Listen to this. I, I loved reading this. It said this. Depends. Know your church. And as you grow, they may want you to preach longer. I think all of us would be disappointed if we went to hear Scott Poling preach and he only went 30 minutes. Well, I don't know who Scott Poling is. But imagine if somebody said that about you, Kurt. It's that's, that's so encouraging to drop that boasting in social media instead of the carping, criticizing that can so often take place. Again, we should be givers of adrenaline shots one to another, lifting others up instead of cutting others down. So another way, commendation, boasting thirdly, Think about approval. Approval. Look, it says there in 1610, Greet appellus approved in Christ. Uh, Approval is to receive confirmation that we're on the right track and that we're accepted by wise friends or colleagues. That can be empowering, and and that's that's approval. A couple of accounts here. Think of a young inventor, Henry Ford. He first met uh, Thomas Edison at a convention. Someone pointed out Ford as a young man who has made a gas car. And Edison spoke for some time with Ford about his automobile idea. And then suddenly Edison enthusiastically banged his fist down on the table, exclaiming, you have it, you have it. Your car is a self-contained machine. It carries its own power plant. And then later Ford reflected on that encounter and that slap down on the table. He says, that bang on the table was worth worlds to me. No man to that point had given me any encouragement. I'd hoped I was heading in the right direction. Sometimes I knew I was. Sometimes I only wondered. But there, all at once, out of a clear sky, the greatest inventive genius in the world had given me complete approval. Ford. Ford. Henry Ford needed that. And we ought to give that to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe our children, maybe our wives, ladies, maybe our husbands. I'm getting ahead, that's tomorrow. Talk about the family implications of this. Walt Whitman, you ever hear of him? Is Carissa still with us? Where's Carissa? Carissa, all right. Carissa's an editor. And Emily, where are you? Emily? Okay, M. M is a writer. So think of this. Walt Whitman became a legendary 19th century American poet, but His youthful beginnings were really halting. For years, very few readers expressed any interest at all in his poems, and he was just fainting. But then an EpiPen came, and it's preserved in a letter that's now to be seen in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. It came in the form of a letter expressing admiration for his little-known work called Leaves of Grass. And here's what the letter said that came to Walt Whitman. It read this way. Dear Sir, I am not blind to the worth of the wonderful gift your book, Leaves of Grass. I find it the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet contributed. I am very happy in reading it. It is a great power to make happy. I greet you at the beginning of a great career. And it was signed by the distinguished... Ralph Waldo Emerson. And Whitman kept that entire gushing five-page handwritten note of appreciation as a treasure that he often pulled out and reviewed when he was fainting along the exhausting way of the oft-discouraged writer vocation. And that's why it remains on display at the Library of Congress, because it launched a legend. In fact, I believe that Pastor Kurt... And Pastor Robert probably have a little file of letters that have been sent and you can pull it out every night. You forget about the file, then you find it, you stumble over and you read it and you just sit and it encourages you by that sense of approval that you've been given. Or how about another way and that is report. Report. And by that I mean the sharing of a verbal account of another person's achievement or accomplishment or heroism. That can give a shot of adrenaline. Look what it says there in 1613 of Romans. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord and his mother and mine. Notice how Paul takes the time to extend his apostolic approval to Rufus, a choice man in the Lord in the lord but notice how he not only has rufus in mind but rufus mother in mind you know how it says a wise son brings joy to a father but a foolish son brings grief to a mother oftentimes the uh, the woman the mother hearing a word about a son who is doing well can make a world of difference was a time when i was a board member of a christian school and i had a a parent write me a note that said teacher so-and-so on her day off wrote me this letter of encouragement regarding the paper that my son had just written she didn't have to take the time writing that note to me but she did and it made my day as a mother hears about a son performing well isn't it true jen that that kind of a thing can turn things around for a mum because a wise son brings joy to a father a foolish son grief to a mother paul found out that the kingdom heroism of epaphroditus was worth reporting to the church at philippi you know what epaphroditus is He's discussed in Philippians chapter 2. See, historically speaking, Paul had been thrown into prison in Rome. And Rome's prison system was one that didn't provide food or clothing or medical care for its inmates. And the church at Philippi had taken up an offering and then sent Epaphroditus Paphroditus with a sizable money bag and a servant's heart an 800-mile journey to find Paul in Rome. And along the way, Epaphroditus was hit with some life-threatening illness They eventually made it to Paul and faithfully delivered the goods and the service. And then upon returning back home to Philippi, Epaphroditus was given a note. And in that note, Epaphroditus was decorated with appreciative report about his own selfless heroism. It reads this way. Look in Philippians 2, 25, it says this, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one I ministered to in my need, since he was longing for you all, he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, for God had mercy on him, and not only on him but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him more eagerly that you may see him again, that you may rejoice, and that I may be less sorrowful. Receive therefore in the Lord with all gladness this man, and hold such men in high esteem because of their work for Christ. For he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. You see, there is this report that is given about the heroism of a He almost died in delivering the goods to me. Kent Hughes is a commentator. and Hughes comments on how the United States failed to recognize the heroism of Vietnam veterans when they returned from the battlefield. You, you heard of that? There was a, I, I was preaching about a month ago in Michigan and there was a Marine sitting there and when I said this, his eyes teared up. And afterwards he says, when I came back from Afghanistan at the airport, I got all kinds of cheers. He said, my dad, who was a Vietnam vet, just broke down in tears because he'd been neglected. People spit it on the Vietnam vets when they came home. Hughes writes this. He says, a church like a culture that does not recognize the sacrifice of its own for the sake of the gospel makes a big mistake. And the wise apostle simply would not let that happen. Epaphroditus had put on the mind of Christ, taking on the humble life of an unsung servant. The Philippians needed to see the young man for who he really was and receive him as such. And so we in the church, we should not permit heroism to go unsung. And so in kind we should make it a matter of conscience to sing the praises of others by reporting their exploits. Like reporting what a Sunday school teacher does among those kids off in the corner where nobody else sees. Reporting what maybe a janitorial worker does in the church in those bathrooms that no one else considers. We should speak about unsung heroism with report. Or how about another way of encouraging? With fifth, name recognition. Name recognition. We each, I think, feel more valued and respected and important when somebody remembers our names. You know, When someone who met you only once greets you by name, it's kind of invigorating breath of fresh air. And in contrast, when you feel uh, when a colleague or acquaintance you've spoken to occasionally seems unable to retrieve your name from his or her memory banks, see, recognizing and using a person's name can deliver eye-brightening encouragement. Remember, as another one story from my youth, I had come from the feeder junior high school, Riverside Junior High, Riverside Junior High. And I went to Creston High School. Well, there are five or six feeder schools that came into Creston High School. And now I'm a a 10th grader, and there are these basketball tryouts. And I was a big dog at Riverside, and I'm a nobody at Creston. Nobody knows anything about me. And you, you, you see it, what's going on, Steven? you know what's happening there. All these guys are running around and I'm feeling really uh, insecure and, and emotionally fragile. But then the the varsity head coach said, when I went up for a layup, hey, Chansky, good job. What? Haskins knows my name? Now, Stephen, I don't mean to say that I became Michael Jordan at that point, but my performance was greatly enhanced by the fact that He knew my name. In fact, biblically, you can see how David, King David, had a fond attachment to his mighty men, and he made sure that they were aware of his appreciation for their loyalty and their acts of valor. You read that passage in 2 Samuel 23, and there's public mention of the names of David's mighty men. And you can see that it's a morale-boosting strategy that David used with his mighty men. In 2 Samuel 23, there is the mention of 37 of David's mighty men and their accomplishments. Accomplishments like attacking a Philistine while defending a field of lentils or like breaking through a Philistine camp to get water from the well at Bethlehem or like striking down a lion in a pit on a snowy day. It just seems clear that King David's Israel name recognition inspired battlefield performance. Because when one of David's men did an act of valor, he got named biblically. And that was not spilling or wasting ink. Every name was well positioned and well stated. You see this too in the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 3, there's the the building of the wall in 52 days. And you see that there are all these little segments. So-and-so built this part. So-and-so built that part. So-and-so built that part. There are 80 names, 80 names that are put into place there. And every jot and tittle packs instruction. There's a lesson here. The healthy prospects of name recognition inspired work performances. It was true in Nehemiah's generation. It's also true in our generation. Even think of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus made a point to using people's names and it would influence their hearts. Think of how Luke 19.5 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up in the tree, and he saw him. What do you say? Zacchaeus, come down, for today I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus, I'm I'm a short little nobody, and he knows my name? He spoke his name. He could have said, hey, you come down. No, no, Zacchaeus. Or think of at the garden tomb. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will go and take him. And Jesus said to her, what would he say? Mary. He said her name in the way that nobody else could say her name. Or even think of Mark 16, 7. What had Peter done? He denied the Lord Jesus three times. He was sure he'd been banished from the affections from, of the Savior forever. But the angel at the tomb says, What, well, what? Go tell his disciples and, and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him. Just imagine what balm it must have been for Peter who denied the Savior to hear that Jesus had instructed the angel to provide a union, a reunion invitation to him by name. Imagine what Peter kept saying to him. Did he, did he, did he really say my name? Did he really say Peter? Lord Jesus dropped names. He was a man of name recognition. There's a man named John Yeager, who wrote a book called I've Got a Name, The Power of Positive Salutation, using people's names. He said, the power of naming came to light for me last year when a fellow teacher at Culver Academics told me that he thanked each student by name. And shook each of their hands as they left class each day. So I decided to formally greet by name each of my students as they arrived at the classroom door. This brought back positive images for me of my third grade teacher, Mrs. Robinson, who was there every morning to greet me. Good morning, John, she would say. What a nice shirt you are wearing. And when she was absent, it just just wasn't the same. So now Jaeger, who's a principal, he says, I now stand at the classroom door and i greet each student as they cross under the archway i shake the hand and i give a verbal greeting by name with eye contact to each and saying things like good morning zach good to see you hi mary heard you got into your first choice for college hey ben you're doing a great job as a lacrosse captain name you do that pastor pastor rob speak talk to them Give them their names. Speak their names. It makes an impact. Tim Keller recounted this experience for a Wheaton College chapel once. You know Tim Keller is here? Does he get this far west, Tim Keller? Okay, you know who Tim Keller is. He says this, when I was very unsure myself as a young person thinking I wanted to go into the ministry, I wasn't sure I could make it. I met a guy named Ed Clowney. You know who Ed Clowney is? Ed Clowney was an alumnus of Wheaton College, and he was president of Westminster Seminary. I'd heard him speak at a conference, and I walked up, and I I met him. Then two years later, when I was really down in the dumps about my prospects, I heard he was speaking. And so I went, and afterwards I walked up to him and said, Hello, Dr. Clowney, I, I, I met you before, and you don't remember who I am. And he said, Oh, I know you. And then he named me. He named me. And he said, let's go out and talk and have a soda together. And Keller says, that that just changed everything for me. He named me. He named me. And that was transformative. And we can be transformative in the lives of others, encouraging them with the epipen of simply remembering and mentioning their names. And so for good reason, listen, the Apostle John concluded Third John, with these words in verse 14, listen to what it says: "Peace to you, our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Use names. It's an encouraging, uncommon, ungodly trait to know, to remember, to recognize and call others by their names. And it's a worthwhile labor of love to seek to remember those names. So, just come on quickly. Uh, Sixthly, think of cheering on. Cheering on is another way that we can encourage. Uh, Cheering on, by that I mean shouting out inspiring support to someone whose spirit may be flagging with a sense of weakness and hopelessness. Think of Nehemiah. In the fourth chapter, as they're building that wall, and Tobiah and Sandbalad are threatening them with nighttime attacks. And what does Nehemiah say? Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your houses. You're doing a great work and you can't come down. Cheering on. We see it all over the scriptures. Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary in well-doing. In due season we'll reap if we don't lose heart. Cheer each other on. D.L. Moody tells a story of there in Chicago. There was a fire in a high-rise apartment building and people are standing in dread as there's a child up on a high floor crying at the window and the ladder comes nearby and the fireman tries to get to the window but there's a flare of fire and he moves back and he starts coming down the ladder because it's hopeless but then somebody in the crowd says cheer him cheer him and they did it they cheered him and the firefighter plucked up courage and found a way to get the child and bring the child down. It was a surge of adrenaline, encouragement that cheered him on. You ever watch the Olympics? Back in uh, 2018, the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, North Korea. Did you watch the speed skating events? How in the world was it that those North Koreans dressed in blue were able to beat the Dutch? No, Koreans cannot beat the Dutch in skating. But they did. Why? Because the North Koreans were before the home crowd who was cheering them on. And it gave him adrenaline shots like nothing else could do. We need to cheer one another on with words of encouragement. We're going to talk tomorrow about, oh, there's a, there's a, there's a young guy in our church. He came to our church, and we eventually made him a deacon. I remember at the ordination day, The mother came from a distant town and was totally overwhelmed that her mediocre son, whom she thought, could ever be recognized as a deacon in the church. Well, she didn't realize that this son had married this delightful young lady who was a cheerleader to this boy. I'm convinced that it's the cheerleading of that wife that had made this hermit of a boy into a hulk of a churchman. And we'll talk tomorrow about the impact, ladies, that you can have on your husband just by simply cheering them on. Just the last last point. We'll just conclude with this. How about the idea of physical contact? Physical contact is a way that we can encourage. Think of how it says there at the end of that chapter 16 section where it says, Greet one another with a holy What does that mean? Greet with a holy kiss. A kiss is a physical expression of love. This was a holy kiss. Nothing sensual, nothing erotic, nothing immoral. In the Judeo-Roman world of the first century, it was a display of affection and support. Kissing another person's cheek or forehead or beard or hands or even the feet was common. And this kind of contact was typically accompanied by an embrace that comprised in a warm expression of love and goodwill. Think of how the prodigal's father, when the prodigal's father saw him, ran to him. It says uh, he had compassion on him, fell on his neck, kissed him. That's a lot of touching that's going on there at this time. And after even Paul bids farewell to the Ephesian elders it says that they kissed him and they were so sorry that they wouldn't see him again touch has an impact doesn't it there's a ucla neuroscience researcher alex korb he has an article called neuroscience reveals four rituals that will make you happy and he explains this Holding hands with someone can help comfort you and your brain through a painful situation. One MRI study scanned married people as they were warned that they were about to get a small electric shock. While anticipating the painful shocks, the brain showed a predictable pattern of response in pain, worrying circuits. During a separate scan, the women either held their husband's hands or the hand of the experimenter, And when a subject held her husband's hand, the threat of shock had a similar effect. The brain showed less activity in pain and worrying circuits. The point is, touch makes a world of difference. James Merritt writes this, A simple touch can convey an incredible sense of love, affirmation, and acceptance. A study conducted at UCLA seven years ago found that To maintain physical contact and emotional health, men and women need eight to ten meaningful touches each day. These researchers define meaningful touch as a gentle tap, a stroke, a hug given by a significant other, such as a wife, a husband, a parent, or a close friend. Touching makes an impact. It really does. I still remember I was telling... uh, kurt and jen about when my dad died back in 2001 my dad died unexpectedly he just scored tied his best golf game we thought we had 20 more years with dad but dad died at age 71 i was devastated i remember it happened early in the day and it was a wednesday night and i was sitting i hadn't eaten anything all day and i had this burger king whopper in the parking lot of a soccer field i was all alone And the thought of, frankly, going to prayer meeting, I just wanted to be alone, but I wanted to be with somebody, so I went and I sat in the back during the prayer meeting and I wandered in late and people were praying about my dad who had died and I just sat back just crying like a baby in the back. There's this woman who's a member of our church, her name is Jennifer. Jennifer has like six children and she's a very matronly lady and Jennifer saw me back there. And she just came and she just buried me in embrace. And I just sat and wept and wept. And, and that embrace spoke to me and ministered to me in a way that the flood of words that came all throughout that week never did. That touch made an impact. We should be, in a healthy way, touching one another. I understand it's a me-too generation. I understand there are all kinds of problems and dangers But the scriptures say we should greet one another with a holy kiss. There should be expressions of affection one to another. Men embracing men and maybe at least a touch on the hand because we shouldn't take away the important principle of the encouraging effects of a touch. And just close with this, this may be kind of a body language kind of a thing, but the mask, the mask. Let me talk about the mask just for a minute. I understand that we can wear masks and we maybe ought to wear masks because of health concerns and health issues, but I tell you, there's a grief that it brings to me that we would go so long that these masks never go away. Because I think there's a sense in which the mask almost vandalizes us as being made in the image of God. You think about being, you have a mask on yours. I wear a mask sometimes too. I'm not against you if you we wear a mask. But the, the, the fact that the facial expression, I mean, we are made in the image of God and that high priestly pair in Leviticus says, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he turn his face towards you and grant you peace. There is something about a smile. There's something about facial expressions that make an impact. Let me tell you about a pastor standing on a pulpit like this. You're talking about Eutychus who was, who was uh, um, falling asleep. Don't fall asleep on your pastor. But instead, if you sit there like our, our brother here in the plaid, you, you give smiles. You, you, Kevin, you sit in the edge of your seat. In fact, you, you sitting there in the front, you have a nice facial expression. You have no idea how, how the pingbacks that you give to your pastor when he preaches... You make the sermon oftentimes. Now there are congregations I can go to that're just stony-faced. Don't be like that. Don't be that kind. Con- give them the holy kiss with body language, expression of appreciation. And do it, do it in your supervising at the workplace. Do it as a mother, do it as a husband, do it as a pastor. Do, I sometimes I say to myself on my notes, I put smile. Smile back at them. Because I believe that body language is really important in the way that we interact one with another. We should be encouragers. Encourage one another all the more as you are doing. May the Lord make us be more and more Christ-like. And I just leave you with this little final encouragement to tuck you into bed before you go to sleep. I'm going to give you a name. Think of your name. It says this in 1 John 3.1. Greater love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. So, child of God, go to sleep, and it'll be well with your soul.